Hello and welcome to HipCast, the podcast here to improve hip fractured care. Our first speaker is Dr. Seth Tarrant, who is an orthopaedic surgeon from Newcastle. Uh, Seth completed his orthopaedic training in 2018 and, and did fellowships both in Switzerland and in Canada before returning to work in Newcastle. He's has an extensive research profile, is currently doing his PhD, but has researched a lot on multi-traumas, unstable pelvic injuries and fragility fractures. Uh, as well as his role as a surgeon and a researcher, Seth has a role with the University of Newcastle as an examiner and a lecturer, and he's currently the co-chair for the New South Wales Health Agency for Clinical Innovation Hip Fracture Advisory Panel. Uh, today, he's going to be speaking to us about the role of tranexamic acid in hip fracture. Welcome, Seth. Uh, thanks a lot for the gracious introduction, Catherine. I'm not sure if I've been described as fabulous before, but I'll let our people make up their own minds regarding that. So the whole point of this talk is to sort of describe a little bit what tranexamic acid is, what do we need to know about it, and the last decades of research looking into it, from the first RCTs to the plethora of RCTs we have now to the combination of those RCTs and also moving on RCTs and ultimately how can it benefit our fragile patients. So for those who have done anatomy or physiology courses, I know we've probably had to learn this uh, confusing coagulation cascade at some point in time. All we need to know from this is that it all leads to fibrin, and fibrin is the basis of what clots blood. So what is tranexamic acid? So fibrin, like most things in the body, has this sort of autoregulation, so it can't get too much. So when you get too much fibrin, it decides to break itself down. So I read that it was the orchestrator of its own degradation, which is a nice way to put it. So when you have this clot, fibrin, uh, when you get too much of it, plasminogen and tissue plasminogen activator bond together, then the whole thing breaks down. What tranexamic acid does is that it blocks lysine binding site, which is a protein on fibrin. So it blocks the ability to fibrin to break itself down. So in other words, when a clot forms, tranexamic acid stops the clot breaking down or the, the confusing term hyper or fibrinolysis. So TXA was invented in the 50s. You know, it's been used since the, a long time and has you know, been used a lot in medicine, but it's only really had a renaissance in the last 10 years. So in the last 65 years, there's been over 5,000 articles written on tranexamic acid, but in the last 10 years, there's been 3.3,000. And of those specialties looking at tranexamic acid, orthopaedics is by far the most interested, followed by the trauma world, and followed by some other you know, less important surgical specialties. What they do, I'm not entirely sure. Elective surgeries, particularly hips and knees, we use tranexamic acid all the time. And we've got to a level where we have these multi-armed RCTs looking at tranexamic acid, whether it be IV or topical or IV and topical or IV and topical en masse. And basically, it's superior in everything. You know, the p-value for everything will be reduced blood loss. In trauma, however, it's a little bit confusing. The biggest trial looking at trauma, uh, the CRASH-2 trial with over you know, 20,000 patients in an RCT, demonstrated that if you gave TXA to people, they had reduced death due to bleeding. Fantastic. And this sort of matched other trials in postpartum hemorrhage, such as the woman trial, which showed reduced death from bleeding. So should we give it to everybody? Well, the sub-analysis showed the further out from injury, you in fact didn't stop death, you increased it. And at this magical 180 minute mark, the odds of dying from tranexamic acid was the same as odds of dying from placebo. And beyond that, if you had TXA, you had a higher chance of dying. So what is a hip fracture patient? 
is a hip fracture patient an elective hip surgery or is it a trauma patient? I'll start going a little bit of the literature, so I apologise in advance. We use statistics for uh, support rather than elimination, like drunkards use lampposts. 2010, out of France, first RCT looking at tranexamic acid. Randomised saline, primary outcome was transfusion, secondary outcome was vascular events. Transfusion was reduced. Only 42% of people with TXA were transfused compared to 6% placebo. Fantastic. Vascular events are, however, 16%. And one in six patients had a death from a vascular event compared to 6% in placebo. So it was killing all patients despite the p-value. So should we use it back then? Well, I was always very hesitant to. Six years later, fantastic. The next RCT, good journal, bone and joint journal, good authors, Nikolai Foss, Henrik Palm, highly published in the hip fracture world. Denmark, good country, good data. Tranexamic acid reduces blood loss. Fantastic. But if you go through the abstract, it says the trial was stopped. Oh, maybe it was stopped because it did such a good job. Well, it did a great job of reducing blood loss. However, if we look at mortality, at the 90-day mark, 30% of patients in the tranexamic acid group were dead compared to 10% in placebo. So patients dying from this. Another RCT, this way from China, looking at outcomes, efficacy and safety. Fantastic. Is this stuff safe? Because at this point in time, I'm not sure. Uh, we look at all these p-values, blood loss, hemoglobin, day one, day three, transfusion rates. Fantastic. However, no mention of mortality. So once all these RCTs start piling up, where is the truth? And the truth lies in these systematic reviews and meta-analyses. This was produced by Professor, uh, so Professor Sadi from Sydney. Um, a well-qualified team. We may know some of these, uh, these authors. Um, however, when we look at all these RCTs, combine them together, we notice their heterogeneity. You know, there's different regimes for TXA. There's varied transfusion protocols, and the patient numbers aren't that great. Overall, it does make a difference requiring blood transfusion. It does reduce blood loss. And overall, there's probably no increase in complications. So great. We can probably use it. It should be safe. But are all patients the same? Well. You know, there's definitely, uh, there's chalk and cheese with some of our hip fracture patients. Some are 69 on the golf course and some are 99 in the nursing home. So we have to start being a little bit more precise with this. 2021, and this is sort of how I got ignited to give this talk, this is a, a large email chain involving the doings of the hip fracture community, which I'm not a part of. Um, and all these RCTs started coming out this year. So this one was from Martin Parker, the highest published, uh, well, highest cited uh, author of hip fractures in the world from the UK. From Peterborough, you know, excellent author. They had a large RCT. They split it up into neck of femurs and trochanteric fractures. Good numbers, good randomization. For the hemiarthroplasty group, we saw reduced transfusion, reduced hemoglobin, and all the other comes were, were, were good with mortality. So for hemiarthroplasties, we saw reduced blood loss, which led to reduced transfusion. For the trochanteric hip fractures or your, your gamma nails and your pin and plates, we didn't see any difference. So one group benefited, but the other didn't. And this to me resonated, it made sense because with a hemiarthroplasty or a, a total hip, the fracture itself is contained within the hip capsule. So the blood loss can't really go anywhere and auto tamponades. You don't get a great deal of bleeding. For a, a trochanteric fracture, you know, the blood goes into the thigh. It's not contained by the hip capsule. So it can bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed. So when it comes to doing a minimally invasive surgery, your gamma nail, you probably don't make such a big surgical insult. So all the bleeding probably happens before surgery rather than during the surgical insult itself. So the transamacid we give may not touch the sides. It makes sense. 
Then the same month, there was another study came out. And this was from the Bone and Joint Journal, probably a better journal than the, uh, an injury, well, higher cited anyway. So does that trump the other study? Looking at it, it had a fancy infographic and it showed that blood loss was less in the inner troughs, but not the femoral neck. So this was the total opposite. But if we look at this study, the transfusion rates were through the roof. Now, 73% for control group and nearly 60% for the TXA group, which isn't a huge, huge difference. And that's very different from the transfusion uh, practice in Australia. And particularly in the inner trough and terror group where the, the people who didn't get TXA, got saline, had an 82% transfusion rate, which is astronomical for my practice. These are the John Hunter figures since 2002. And our transfusion rate at the turn of the uh, millennium was about 40%. That's sort of steadily crept down to the high 20s. So 82% versus you know 30% is, is chalk and cheese. So how can we accept that study or interpret that or apply it to our own practice? Um, this was a study from China looking at trochanteric fractures themselves, so the ones that didn't benefit in the Martin Parker study, and essentially showed that hemoglobins day one, day two, day three before surgery were all less than the acid group. So maybe we should be giving TXA to patients with trochanteric hip fractures in emergency rather than surgery, sort of shift our paradigm a little bit. And is more TXA better? Well, this is a study from Thailand, three groups came out this year, saline one dose or two doses and looking at the transfusion rates um the two doses was far superior however they didn't break it out between fracture types and uh whether type practice applies to australia i'm not sure 3.3 percent compared to 43 percent is a huge difference and it hasn't really been replicated by other studies uh, i have to give a shout out to one of the retros gajan Kumaran and uh professor joel balog um they performed this little retrospective review which you know, it's certainly not as high evidence as the other papers I presented. However, it gives a bit of insight into what we do here based upon our own sort of gut feelings, so to speak. And I suppose the most interesting thing with this retrospective review is that 80% of patients who begin with TXA at the John Hunter had arthroplasty, and only 20% um, who didn't have TXA were arthroplasty. So we certainly have a, a bias towards giving patients uh, TXA when those have, have arthroplasty, which is probably, probably leading towards in the correct, uh, correct direction. Is it more effective though? Well, basically the only statistical group that was advantageous for giving TXA and having less transfusions was in the total hip group, which makes sense. Big surgery, repairing the femur and the acetabulum, probably didn't bleed much from the actual fracture, but a large blood loss during the surgical instance. Um, but all patients the same even within arthroplasty. Now this was a, a group I worked with in Calgary on fellowship and they looked at uh, TEG, or uh, elastographs, uh, the thrombus, seeing how thrombus behaves. And when a patient's admitted, and excuse the busy graph, but basically what's in the pink are patients that are prone to get PEs at this magical uh, MA of 65 and those who uh, aren't prone in the white. And as we see in admission, maybe about 25% patients are prone of being hypercoagulable, but as we get post-surgery, it gets up and up and up and up. So there probably is a sweet spot before surgery where some people uh, who aren't prone to clotting may benefit from TXA, but as we get post-op, we should be a little bit, little bit afraid of uh, hypercoagulating. Maybe TXA is not indicated well past surgery. Uh, ultimately, I think the future is goal-directed resuscitation. So is looking at patients, looking at their clotting factors and seeing or not whether they're going to clot a lot, or whether they're going to clot you know, nothing, or in trying to tailor, tailor TXA to the patient themselves. And that may depend on whether on anticoagulants, whether DOAX or aspirin or Plavix. So this is a busy graph, I apologise, but this is basically looking at the different phenotypes of clotting in trauma patients. So the majority of patients are in this green zone in the middle where they, they clot and they unclot and they clot and they unclot. 
Um, some patients are in this red line where they've got hyperfibrinolysis, so they don't clot at all, which only makes up 10% of the population. But when they have this phenotype, they have a 50% chance of dying. And the other option is where the blue line at the bottom, where in fact they stop, they stop breaking down clots, so they clot a lot, which may be where our hip fractures sit. But we don't know. This sort of information doesn't exist for hip fractures, but I think it will and truly is the future. So a lot of information there, I apologise. Um, I'll show you my gut feeling, and anybody who gets this Monty Python reference, my gut isn't that big, but uh, it is a big gut feeling. I think whatever you do, restrictive transfusion seems to be superior. Now, some of those studies of transfusion limits were at 10. If they transfuse anybody with hemoglobin below 100, I don't think that's correct. I think we should use our blood guidelines, which is basically 80 for some of the ischemic heart disease and 70 for all the other comers. I think the intracapsular fractures or arthroplasty where the surgical insult can account for a large proportion of blood loss, I think they benefit as supported by the, the Martin Parker study from injury this year. I think extra capture may benefit from the quick post-injury dose in the emergency department. Uh, that should be assessed, you know, by the surgeon. Uh, and the, the nasty of the fracture pattern or the more common units, such as the reverse obliques, probably benefit more because we, we do know they bleed more. Um, but ultimately, I think watch this space in the next five, 10 years, we'll know a lot more about the particular coagulation profiles of individual replacements, be able to use technology such as Rotom and Tex to sort of help tailor our treatment to individual patients. And I'll leave it there. Um, feel free to shoot me any questions via my personal email. More than happy to chat about Tex anytime and provide articles so people can have their own interpretations. So there's a lot of studies I didn't include in this talk. So there's different ways to uh, interpret the evidence well and truly. And of course, ways you can use it to support yourself rather than illuminate. Thank you. Thank you very much, Seth, for um, a really well-rounded presentation of the what could be described as quite confusing uh, results within the literature. Seth, my question then relates to uh, risk. So if uh, in, in the most recent studies you're able to demonstrate improvements in transfusion rate um, and, and decreased blood loss, particularly in the uh, intracapsular fractures. But the other studies for the intratrochanteric fractures didn't really demonstrate an increase in risk. So why would you not just give it to everybody preoperatively? Well, exa exactly. No, very valid point. No, just because it uh, doesn't, it may make an improvement. It's because it's not demonstrated by one study, but certainly there isn't, is not an increased risk profile by giving it. it doesn't appear to be so. Others been teased out. Yeah. Also, there are low numbers, you know, in terms of powering for thromboembolic events that are not that common in hip fracture. Maybe these studies are underpowered for that outcome. Most of them are powered to transfusion, assuming yeah. there's a 20% transfusion decrease and assuming about 30% of the population is transfused. So they're probably not adequately powered for our for that outcome, which is why there's always secondary outcomes. But it, it, it probably doesn't hurt. So I take your point, you probably can give it to anybody and mm -hmm. it probably won't hurt them. But yeah. I think they probably have the most benefit in arthroplasty. Uh, you also put up a really interesting slide um, out of Canada when you were describing assessment of somebody's risk, essentially, yes. risk of clots. Um, how specifically were they doing that? Was that... You, you said that that was in your general trauma patients. No, that's, that was hip fracture as well. Sorry, that, okay. uh, oh, is that is that the one that had the um, the half white half? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, that was all hip fractures. So, yeah. how are you determining that? 
How are you determining their pre-op risk? What are the factors? Because one of the common questions I get from anaesthetics is, um, you know, the risk of potential thromboembolic events with TXA. You know, does this patient still need IV TXA compared to, say, oral TXA? And that, uh, sorry, um, topical Bottle, TXA. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts around, I guess, the assessment of the patient that's higher risk for a thromboembolic event um, and whether you personally identify those people to be only suitable for topical versus IV or is there no evidence? A lot of these RCTs exclude patients with high thromboembolic risks. Uh A lot of them exclude patients who are on anticoagulation as well. So that makes it a little bit confusing and sort of detaches it from the real world. so I, if they've had a history of embolic event, I personally do not give it. I'm a, I'm a chicken, um, and I will certainly head towards the top school. Okay, great. Seth, uh, Uh-oh. no, it's good. Um, what, if you're giving two doses, what's the timing of those doses? If, you know, the first dose within 180 minutes, oh. when do you give the second dose, or do you just give a single dose? Oh, no, I, I do. I think that some of the trials do zero in three hours, and I, I agree with that. I think it should be probably given pretty close within the surgical insult. The with, four, within four three hours of admission. Yeah. Zero, eight, and 16. But uh, okay. I think the hip pressure maybe make the dose a little bit quicker. A lot of uh, cardiac events happen pretty within the first couple of days. So I think if you want to try to stop bleeding, stop it as soon as possible. Okay. Um, next question. Are you going to discussing tailored treatments. A tailored treatment's ideal, but in the real world, more generic protocols are the way that we're going to actually change overall management. What do you think is better in practice? Tailored treatment compared to um to protocols? Protocol. Yeah. Oh, I, of course I think tailored treatment's better in practice. Uh, but it's, it's, it's resource reliant. It is time dependent. You need people doing these. It's expensive to have have a tech machine lying around in the resource bay. Um, so so I, I think that uh, I think that for maybe a subset of the population that are, have a previous thromboembolic disease, um, that have a high-risk uh, injury pattern, such as a reverse oblique, if they're anticoagulated, then maybe uh, tailored treatment can be used for a subset of the population. But for the run-of-the-mill sort of 83-year-old female broken neck of femur, gets around on a stick, still, you know, talks to a family and goes to the bowling club. I, I think you probably have protocols for, for the majority of patients. You know, I think, I think it's, it's probably safe to give for hemis and probably safe to give for uh, trochanteric fractures for most comers. Thank you. Um, a question about your studies and mobilisation. Are you aware if any of your studies um, looked at secondary outcomes related to post-op hypotension and mobilisation and TXA use? No, I'm not aware of. Uh, I've read a lot of stuff on TXA uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks, but I don't. I don't think. Um, I'm not sure about high post-op hypertension that hasn't stood out. But in terms of mobilisation, whether it be a um, you know an up and go score or a, a cumulative ambulatory score. I don't think anybody looked at some sort of objective marker of mobilisation. Okay, great. Thank you. And probably last question um, relates a little bit to what we were speaking about earlier. Are you aware for hip fracture patients, is there a recommendation for IV versus topical TXA? Uh, Obviously, in in elective arthroplasty patients, it's pretty much demonstrated you can do any. Uh, Is there a particular recommendation for hip fracture patients? 
Um, I, no, I don't, think, no, I don't have any particular recommendations. There was there was a, a Chinese study looking at topical TXA RCT that did show benefit, so it has been proved. Uh, I do like using it. I did a prosthetic last night. I put two grams of TXA, you know, in in at the end just to cross my fingers and hope for the best. Plus IV TXA that they'd already had. So I'm a fan of topical TXA. Um, in terms of specific protocols, I think it can be added. You know. Uh, with gay abandon, I don't think it's gonna gonna hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would recommend surgeons do it. Great. Well, thank you very much, Seth. That's a great presentation, a really good um, discussion around the literature. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today. Yeah, okay, thank you very much.